The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 3, 4, and 5. Verses 3, 4, and 5 in the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. We come back to consider these solemn words once more. We looked at them last Sunday morning in a general sense. We looked at them as they teach us of the way in which the church faces moral problems in this present world. But this morning, having done that, we must come back and look at them more in detail and in particular. The apostle himself does that, so we must do that, however painful a process it may be. The Christian must never be content merely with grasping principles. He must grasp principles, and he must start with principles. So much of the trouble, it seems to me, in the church today is due to the fact that people don't grasp principles. They miss the wood because of the trees. But it's, on the other hand, equally dangerous to be content with principles only. We are meant first to grasp the principles, and then we are meant to apply them in detail to every action, aspect of our Christian life and living. Now, that is something which we must hold in our minds. Every part of our life is to be governed by our Christian principles and by our Christian faith. Everything. You notice how the apostle comes down to details and he covers the whole of life. Or, putting this positively, we must never lose sight of the fact that the ultimate object of Christianity is that we should be holy and that we should walk before God blameless in love. Now the apostle has told these Ephesians that at the very beginning of his letter in verse 4 of the first chapter, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that in order that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That is the end and the object of the Christian faith. It is to prepare us to walk before God in this world and to spend our eternity in the presence of God. And if we lose sight of that, well then our Christianity, so-called, is utterly and entirely in vain. And what the Apostle is doing in this great section is to show these people how they are to become 
holy and to walk before God in love, in this holiness and in this purity. And therefore it behoves us to look at and to examine what he says. He adopts his usual formula. We've seen that from the 17th verse in the 4th chapter, that he's got a formula which he always uses, and it's this. He first of all tells us what we mustn't do, he then tells us what we ought to do, and thirdly, he gives us a reason for all this. He never fails to do that. There are always those three elements. Things we mustn't do, things we should do, and the reason why. We are not treated as children, we are not treated as machines. We are to know what we are doing. And a Christian who doesn't know why he or she should be living the Christian life is a very poor Christian indeed. If you're fighting against it and don't understand it and wish you hadn't got to live like this, well, it's just a betrayal of the fact that you've never understood the first principles of the gospel. There is always a reason for everything that we are told not to do, everything we are told to do. Very well, let's adopt the Apostles' classification. There are certain things which, as Christians, we are to avoid and to renounce completely. We are to have nothing to do with them. What are they? Well, let me read to you again this awful, terrible list. Now, let's remember this. The apostle here was not trying to reform the world. He was writing to Christians. These words are addressed to members of the church at Ephesus and other churches. This is not general moral advice to the world outside. These words are addressed to Christians. And therefore we deduce that Christians need such words to be addressed to them. And God knows that is still the case. So this is not, I say, uh, the church's general moral program in, with which in which he can join with the world and the state in trying to clean up society, not a bit of it. This is addressed to the church. And these are the things which as Christians we are told that we must renounce and avoid completely and entirely. Most of these words explain themselves and need no comment, but some of them need a little comment. Here they are, first and foremost, fornication. And all uncleanness, every form, every type, every suggestion of it, is to be avoided. Uncleanness. We'd have nothing to do with it. Not only the specific thing itself, but all uncleanness. We must work that out for ourselves. How prone we are at times to think that... Uh, Things done in the mind are not as bad as things done in actual practice, but all uncleanness, every form and type of it, is just to be banished out of our lives. Then uh, we come to the next, which is covetousness. This means, of course, avarice, love of money. Love of money as money. Love of money, partly for itself and partly because of what it can do for us. The things we can buy with money, the things we can procure with money, 
the things we can do if we've got money, the love of all that, money and all that money represents and all that money can do and achieve, that's the thing he's condemning under the word covetousness. We are to have nothing to do with that. We are to leave it alone. It belongs, he says, to the old life, but has nothing to do with the Christian life. Covetousness. Then the next word you notice is the word filthiness. And what's this? Well, it means, uh, for one thing, obscenity. Anything that is obscene in speech. But it doesn't stop at that. It includes everything that is vile or disgusting in speech or in conduct. And it's a good word that the authorized translators have used here. How expressive, expressive it is. Filthiness. Anything that is filthy or has even a suspicion of filth about it. We have nothing to do with it. Anything that is shameless and ugly and polluted. Filthiness. Doesn't belong at all, says the apostle, in the Christian life. Then we come to another one, foolish talking. What does this mean? Well, this means empty, frivolous, senseless, thoughtless, foolish and sinful talk and speech. Now, it's interesting to notice that he puts that into this list. The other things are so foul and revolting. But you see, he puts this into the same list, foolish talking. That kind of empty, thoughtless chatter, babbling. That doesn't belong, he says, to the Christian. The Christian's talk must never be empty. It mustn't be senseless. It must never be frivolous. A Christian man should never be a frivolous person. And he should never speak in, a, in a, just a frivolous and a light, vapid, empty manner. It's so typical of the other life, but it's got nothing to do with this life. I shall be elaborating that positively in a moment, but I do emphasize the aspect of taking thought. One of the things that should characterize the life of the Christian always is this element of thoughtfulness. I'm almost tempted to say at this point that it not only applies to our speaking, but even to our singing. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. You don't jig that. You don't rush that. The difference between Christian and non-Christian singing, in a sense, is the element of thoughtfulness. We don't sing tunes, we sing the words. There are certain things you don't rush. Let singing be bright, but never Christian singing breezy. Never jauntily. Now this is a characteristic of the Christian. The other people don't think, you see. They, their talk is foolish, empty, not considered. But the Christian isn't like that, says the apostle. So all foolish talking is banished out of the life of the Christian. And then he comes to another which he puts with this, which is jesting. We know what this is. This is clever polished, witty talk. 
which has a harmful and sinful tendency. The original word has got the idea of turning in it. You know, the turning of a phrase, the clever, sophisticated, witty, polished shafts which such people throw out. Any double meaning, any suggestiveness, anything which is ribald or scurrilous in any sense, that's what he means by jesting. And that, again, he says, has got nothing to do with the Christian life. It should be banished altogether. Foolish talking and jesting, which are not convenient. And then in this fifth verse, he's got this terrible collection of words, whoremonger, unclean person. And again, he mentions the covetous. Well, now then, there are the words. It is no part of the business of Christian preaching to spend too much time upon them. It surely should be enough for Christian people to mention them and just make it certain that we are clear in our minds as to what they mean and what they represent and what they stand for. What the Apostle is saying is this. There are the things that characterize non-Christian society. And, uh, as we've already seen in chapter 4, this is all but a too accurate description of the life of pagans in the time of the apostle. And these Ephesians had been brought out of that sort of life. They were once in it, and they'd been living like that. That was exactly how they lived, and as they thought, enjoyed themselves. And the apostle is just reminding them that to be a Christian just means that you've been taken right out of that. Well, then you don't bring that with you. You're out of that kingdom. You're in another kingdom. You're translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And what he's saying is this. You don't bring those things into this kingdom. The kingdom's altogether different. Why did Christ die? Wasn't it to purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works? So he says, you, you don't do these things, you have nothing to do with them any longer. Now that, I say, is the kind of life that is lived where the gospel and its teaching are not in control. And need I take the trouble to point out that this kind of thing is becoming increasingly evident in the life of this world today? We must take these things in our own day and generation as the apostle was urging these people in his day uh, to avoid them. These are the things that are still becoming more and more evident and prominent in the life of non-Christian people in every class in the professions, in all circles. It's appalling to think of it, but it is perfectly true. I remember as a young man being shocked at the kind of thing that could happen amongst learned men, even in professional circles. The type of story that was told one didn't expect it from such people, but one got it. And it is still taking place. This foolish talking and jesting. The telling of stories. That horrible phrase, have you heard this one? 
and how men collect them and take trouble to remember them. The foolish talking, the jesting, the suggestiveness of it all. But now the point is, as the apostle says, that all that is to have no place in the Christian life. And yet isn't there a danger of this coming into the Christian life? Oh, but you say, they wouldn't tell such ribald, such unclean stories. I know they wouldn't, but the apostle says that foolish talking is not to come in, in any shape or form. And yet how often does it come into Christian work? And it seems to me to be coming more and more into Christian work. Why should it be regarded as an excellent bit of technique for a speaker on a Christian platform to start with a joke? But that's the sort of thing that surely is coming in increasingly. And very often a story is told which hasn't the remotest connection with the gospel. But it's told simply, as we are told, to make contact with the congregation. I once took part in an anniversary service in a certain part of this country. It was a great rally. There were about 1,800 people there. And I had to sit and listen to the first speaker who, without any exaggeration, for a quarter of an hour, simply told the people a number of stories. And I couldn't see the remotest Christian application in any one of them. And indeed, he didn't even try to apply them. And the people were roaring with laughter greatly enjoying themselves. That's entertainment, my friends. It's got nothing to do with the Christian life or with the activities of the Christian church. All that is empty, all that is merely meant to amuse or to entertain, foolish talking and jesting. There's no place in the Christian life and in Christian conduct and amongst Christian people. And it would be a very good thing if every Christian in this congregation took a resolution never again to introduce that horrible phrase, have you heard this one? doesn't belong to Christianity. Though you may leave off and leave out that which was grossly offensive, you're still using the same terminology, the same kind of technique. Christians don't tell stories to one another. They've got something much better to say to one another. That's what the Apostle is saying. Well, very well, there are the things then that we are to avoid and to leave alone and to renounce once and forever. Let me come, therefore, to the second principle. How are we to avoid these things? And the Apostle tells us. He, first of all, tells us that uh, on the negative side, and he puts the negative first, that we are not to do such things at all. That goes for granted almost, doesn't it? They, they, they mustn't be done, any of these things. We mustn't do them. But he doesn't stop at that, you notice. He says, let it not be once named among you. Now here's the thing we've got to emphasize. You mustn't even mention it. You mustn't hint at it. You mustn't come anywhere near to approaching it. Not only must you not do these things, says the apostle, don't talk about them, don't mention them. They're unmentionable. They shouldn't come in at all, in any shape or form, either in your speech or even in your thought. Now, we've got again to work this out in terms of our own modern position. You see, the apostle was writing in an age when they hadn't got daily newspapers and the wireless and the films and the radio and the television and all the rest of it. And in those days, you were confined 
to speech in this matter of propagating such ideas and thereby leading to sinful action in practice. So he puts it in these terms, let it not be once named among you. Don't mention it. Never bring it in anyhow, in any shape or form. But now I say, uh, we've got to work this out in a slightly different, indeed in a greatly different context. And if it was difficult for Christian people then, well, what is it like now? There is a sense in which it's true to say that it was never more difficult to live the Christian life in its fullness than it is today. I don't mean by that that people are more sinful. They were doing all these things before. But I, what I'm saying is this, that the Christian is surrounded by all this in a way that he wasn't in those days. It was then mainly a matter of speech. So we must look first at his principle, which is this. We are to avoid in every shape or form anything that in any way is likely to make us do any one of these things. Fornication, uncleanness, and all the rest of them. Now, the whole art, the whole strategy of Christian living is to watch temptation at the beginning. If you let temptation get the slightest foothold in you, you're more or less finished. It's the preliminary onslaught that you're to meet. That's why he says, let it not be so much as named amongst you. If you, don't, if you want to stop doing these things, says the apostle, stop talking about them. And if a man is in the company and he just insinuates a remark, he started a process at once. Now, don't do it. Stop it. Cut that off. Start at the beginning. If you watch the beginning, well, then you won't have so much trouble. Now that is what makes it so difficult for the Christian at this present time in this world. So we must work out this principle. We are to keep clear of everything and anything that in any way does us harm and tends to incline us in the direction of these things that don't belong to the Christian life. So you see, we shall be fighting all along the line from the moment we get up in the morning until we go to sleep at night because the whole world is shouting these things at us. And how does it do so? It does so in its newspapers. And you start with your newspaper in the morning, perhaps at your breakfast. Let it not be once named among you, says Paul. Yes, but it will be named on the front page probably. Even in days of crisis and difficulties such as this, look at the things that are being not only whispered, but being shouted at us as if they mattered or were of any importance to anybody. But there it is. We've got to avoid it in the newspapers. You've got to read your newspaper with discrimination. You've got to avert your eyes from certain things. You've got to be abreast with the news. You've got to be an intelligent citizen. You therefore must read your newspaper so that you can vote intelligently. But as you read, you've got to avoid, avert, keep yourself to the things that matter and avoid all others and discourage them for all you're worth. Magazines likewise. You look at a railway bookstall and you'll see them and you'll see their suggestiveness and watch people buying them. Magazines that by their very title tell you what they are. For men only. Why for men only? Well, there's something wrong there. 
and look at the photographs and the advertisements. Avoid them, says Paul. Have nothing to do with them. Leave them where they are. Turn your eyes away. Plays. Films. Things that come over on the wireless. Television. Oh, I needn't keep you, my dear friends. You know what I'm talking about. These are the things that are being suggested and whispered. The foolish talking, the jesting, the cleverness, the suggestion, the innuendo. Do you want to make the fight more difficult for yourself? Do you think you really can stand up to the devil and to the lusts that are within you? Well, then do what the apostle tells you. At the end of the 13th chapter of the epistle to the Romans, he says, Make no provision for the flesh. And if you look at things like that and read them, you're making provision for the flesh. And don't be surprised if you fall. Have nothing to do with it. Let them not be so much once as named amongst you. Have nothing at all to do with them. Nip them in the bud. Stop at the beginning. Don't have any interest at all in them. And go on to the books and the novels. And yes, have you noticed re recently also the biographies? Biographies are being increasingly published one after another in which revolting details are being revealed, which are of no value and of no uplift to anybody at all. But there is a delight at the present time in pornography, and people delight in the unsavory and the unseemly. Well, what the apostle is really urging us to do is this, he says, have nothing to do with it. Avoid it in total. If there is a suspicion of a lack of cleanliness in the thing, don't look at it. You can do without the knowledge and the information. Oh, you say, I'm a student of sociology. I'm interested in this. Well, give up your interest, I say. To the pure, all things are pure. But if you're not pure, even good things can become bad. The whole emphasis of the apostle is that we must have nothing to do with these things. Let them not even be named once among you, as becometh saints. Keep as far away as you can from all these things. And then he goes on to tell us how to do this positively, because we're not merely left in a negative condition. He says, uh, let these things not be once named among you, and then neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting which are not convenient, but rather, here's the positive, what we are to do. Giving of thanks. Now what does this mean? This he elaborates later on in the chapter, so I'm not going to spend much time on it this morning. He elaborates it in nine, verses 19 and 20, where he says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me remind you again that the apostle is here dealing with what happens amongst Christian people in the Christian circle. He's not telling us here how we are to talk and to conduct ourselves with non-Christians. It applies, of course, up to a point there. But this is specifically how we conduct ourselves amongst ourselves as Christians. And you notice that he puts it like this, but that we are to give thanks. Not to mention these other things in any way, but rather giving of thanks. What does this mean? Well, let me put it in this form. The Christian, you know, is not to be dull. 
And if you draw the conclusion from what I've already been saying, that I'm just advocating a kind of dull, mechanical life, uh, it's quite wrong. The Christian is not to be a dull and a morbid and an uninteresting person, not for a moment. He's never to be guilty of jesting and smartness and cleverness. No, no. But he, that doesn't mean that he's got to be dull or pompous or uninteresting. No, the Christian is one who is to be giving thanks. Well, that means, of course, that he is one who is to express joy and happiness in his life. He's a man who's got a profound sense of gratitude to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ within him. He's a man who wants to be giving thanks. So we must get rid of all notions of dullness. And of course that is where a false Puritanism has so frequently done harm. There have been people who have interpreted this kind of injunction in, a, in an entirely and exclusively negative manner. And there they are. They don't do things, but they're useless. They're of no value to anybody. They repel people from the Christian faith. The Christians never meant to be dull. Giving thanks, says Paul. There is this joy to be evident in the life of, our, of the Christian. And uh, this should come out in all his conversation, in all his speech, and in all his department. Well, now how are we to do this? Well, again, I must start with a negative. There are people who immediately interpret what I've just been saying by putting on a breeziness and a brightness. God forbid that we should ever do that. That's as bad as the poor, false Puritan person. No, no. We must never put on anything. This is to be something that expresses itself inevitably in us, because we are Christians. It's not to put on an inane grin, and to be a bright and breezy and cheerful, backslapping kind of person. I can't imagine the Apostle Paul doing a thing like that. No, and neither, let us remember, does it mean that we use glib catchphrases and cliches. You know, there's a type of person who, finding this phrase here which says, rather giving of thanks, constantly when you're talking to them, they keep on jutting in the words, praise the Lord. Uh, praise the Lord. Now, that isn't what is meant by giving of thanks. It isn't catchphrases. It isn't cliches. It isn't just using expressions which come lightly off the lip. No, 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 no. It's something profound. It is something that expresses the depth of being and of personality. And then a man isn't conscious of it and he doesn't do it by rote. He doesn't do it mechanically. There's nothing mechanical about this Christian life. This is a change of heart. This is a new nature. And it comes out in that way. Very well then, how does it come out? Well, the Apostle, it seems to me, uh, interprets this uh, statement of his own very perfectly in the last chapter of his epistle to the Colossians in, in verse 4, in verse 6, rather, of the fourth chapter, where he says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how we ought to answer every man. That's it. It's this speech that is always with grace, and it's seasoned with salt. That keeps the polluting element out of it. So I would interpret it like this, that the Christian speech must always be thoughtful, as I've been emphasizing. 
The Christian is a man who started thinking. So much of the other life is thoughtless, like a bubble. But the Christian speech is thoughtful. And another thing that always characterizes it is this, that it's always profitable. People should always feel somewhat better from having spoken to us. They should have gathered something. Not only positive instruction, but coming into contact with us ought to do them good. It ought to make them feel better. There's something solid about the Christian in his conversation and in the whole of his life and activity. Yes, and I go further. I find nothing here which excludes even an element of humor in the conversation of the Christian. But it is always, of course, a humor that is under control. It's never foolish talking. It is never jesting. The humor of the Christian is that which is natural, which is in, inevitable in the man. The Christian is never a man who tries to be funny. That's the thing that must go right out. He never does it as simply in order to impress or to call attention to himself or to cut a figure or to be the center of interest in a conversation. Never. The Christian never calls attention to himself. He doesn't monopolize the conversation. The better the Christian, the better he is as a listener. But you watch that sort of person in a circle, man or woman, always trying to keep the whole conversation, wanting to be the object of interest and of admiration. That's the thing that's condemned. Foolish talking and jesting. Cleverness. Concerned with making an impression. Now the Christian should never do that. But if the Christian is given by God a gift of humor, let him use it, let it come out naturally. But it'll always be controlled. It'll never be ribald. It'll never be scurrilous. It'll never do harm to anybody. There'll be a kind of beauty about it, which will be of value and uplifting. So you see, this Christian is a man who is always to be giving thanks. In appearance, in demeanor, deportment, conversation, speech. He's a man who always remembers who he is and what he is. He never forgets it. He always realizes that he is what he is by the grace of God. He's a man who's always conscious that he's been delivered out of that old, evil, filthy life. That life of the world with its clamor and its emptiness. He thanks God he's been taken out of it. And that always comes out in the whole of the man's life, in all he is and in all he says. He's seen through all that. He hates it. He doesn't want anything more to do with it. And he doesn't bring into his new life that kind of thing which he used to do there with just a few things left out of it. You know, there are certain Christians, I regret to have to say it, whenever I hear them speak, in public or in private, uh, I'm still made to think that uh, in their old lives they would have made excellent comedians. And I feel that that should never be true of a Christian. The same kind of language, the same sort of phrase, the same sort of attitude. They've cut out certain parts of it, but the main thing is still there. It shouldn't be in the Christian. He's a new man, and he knows that he's been taken out of that at the cost of the death of the Son of God. He owes all to God and to Christ, and this dominates the whole of his life, and it comes out everywhere in him. We're all failures. We're all miserable sinners in these matters, are we not? But this is what we should be, says the Apostle. 
Cut out all that and begin to do this. Let this be the great characteristic of your life so that as people come and talk to you, they find something attractive about you. They feel there's something clean and pure, something uplifting, something intelligent and thoughtful, profitable. You're not dull. No, no, you're interesting. There's a charm about you. And they feel that there's an element of praise in your whole life. And they say, what do they find to praise God? Where do they find it in a world like this? Would that I were like that? That's how the Christian is to behave, giving of thanks. And there I've considered it mainly in the matter of speech and of conversation. But it also comes in in another way. You notice that he's very concerned about this question of covetousness. He mentions it twice. And the Christian is to deal with that positively also. Not only is he not to have this love of money, which as he tells Timothy later on, is the root of all evil. What a statement. The love of money is the root of all evil. Now he doesn't mean money as such and alone, I say. It also includes what money can achieve and produce. And if a man loves money in that way, well, it's not surprising if he makes some sort of shipwreck in his life. It is the root of all evil. Think of the things that come out of that. Think of the evil and the sin that comes because men have money too much. Well, how do you deal with that? Well, undoubtedly, it's here everywhere in the New Testament. The way to avoid that particular snare and danger is to put your money to right use. Give thanks to God through your money. Show your gratitude to him by supporting everything that belongs to him and his kingdom. That's the way to avoid it. If you feel this thing is worrying you, well then I say kill it by giving the money in a right cause. Now I'm not saying that a man should give away all his money. The New Testament doesn't say that. Many a man has done that, you know, and that's an easy way out. That's a way of evading the problem. What the New Testament says is this, that we are to be stewards. And a steward isn't a man who gives it all away. No, no, a steward is a man who uses it in the right way. Doesn't put it to a wrong use, does put it to a right use. He doesn't give it all away. He can't be a steward then. There's nothing to look after. But this is the way to kill covetousness. To use this to the glory of God as an expression of your thanksgiving and praise to God for all that he's done to you. For his sending of his dear son to die for you and to deliver you out of that old life that was so foul and so evil, so superficial, so useless. The life of the world. Well, there is the second thing. We've been told what not to do. We've been told what to do. And then we are told why we must do the negative and the positive. The reasons are perfectly plain. I have but to hold them before you. They're here, you see, in his typical words. Listen, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. My dear friends, we are saints. What's a saint? Well, there is nothing that the Roman Catholic Church has done which is worse than her misuse of the word saint. According to that view, as you know, only certain Christians are saints 
and you canonize them, and you say, Saint so-and-so, it's an utter lie. Every Christian is a saint, every one of us. The letters are addressed to the saints at Corinth, saints in all the churches, as becometh saints, he says, to all these church members. Every one of us is a saint. Let us denounce and deny that Roman Catholic error, that Roman Catholic lie. Well, what is a saint? Well, the meaning of the word is that you're a holy person. A saint is a person that has been set on one side by God for his own pleasure and for his own use. It's the same word exactly as you get in the Old Testament, if you read your books of Exodus and Leviticus and so on, about the holy vessels that were to be placed in the tabernacle and on the altar. They were called holy vessels. What does that mean? Well, it meant this, that you didn't use those vessels for anything but that. You didn't use them for your ordinary cooking or for your ordinary eating and drinking. Holy, separated, set apart, put there for this peculiar purpose and for God's own use. That's what a saint is. And you and I are saints. We've seen already in verse 1 that we are dearly beloved children of God. Yes, but we are saints for that reason. We are God's own peculiar possession. He has set us apart for himself, for his own joy and delight, his own pleasure. That's what a saint is. And every single Christian is a saint. Well said, says the apostle, realize that you are a saint. Remember who you are. Say it to yourself the first thing in the morning. Say it as you're traveling to your office or your work, in your car or in the tube or on the bus or whether you're walking or cycling. Say to yourself, I'm a saint. I'm a separated person. I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. And there are certain things Therefore, which I must never do or even dream of doing, I mustn't look at them. And then, you see, he brings it out by these second words, as becometh saints. And then this other expression, uh, which, is not con which are not convenient. What do they mean? Well, what he means is this. He says these things don't become the saint. They don't fit into the saint. They're not befitting. They're not seemly. And here again the figure, the picture that is in his mind is a perfectly familiar one. And we all should see it at a glance. As becometh. There are some people who don't address in a manner that's appropriate to who they are and what they are. If you saw a very old lady dressing herself as if she were 20, you'd say it's not becoming. And it isn't becoming. There is a fitness about things. Certain things go together, certain things don't. You say, ah, oh, but does that match? Is there a clash in those colors? Are they fitting into, as becometh? That's what he's saying. He's using an illustration from the world of dress. And he says, you know, these things don't become the Christian. They don't fit in. They're not convenient. There's a horrible clash. The man of the world watches a Christian going into a place he shouldn't enter, he says, do you see what that Christian man's doing? And even the men of the world is shocked and amazed. 
Even the man of the world recognizes the hypocrite. He knows that that kind of conduct doesn't fit with that man's profession. And so the apostle tells us to realize and to remember who we are and to be certain always that all we do fits in with, matches what we are and what we claim and profess as becometh saints. And then he goes on and condemns covetousness because it is idolatry. And there is no more terrible or horrible sin than idolatry. It means that you make a god of something. And you worship that god. And he says that covetousness is idolatry. You'll find that repeated many, many times in the New Testament. But it doesn't matter what it is. Anything that you and I tend to set up as the big thing, the central thing in our lives, the thing about which we think and dream, the thing that engages our imagination, the thing we live for, the thing that gives us the biggest thrill, if it's anything but God, it is idolatry. And it's for every one of us to examine ourselves. There are people who worship money and what it can do and bring and get. There are people who worship status and position. There are people who worship their own brains and ability. There are people who worship their own good looks. It's idolatry. And it is the ultimate sin. There is no more terrible sin. We are meant to worship God and to worship God alone. And there is but one God. And he recognizes none other. God forbid that any one of us should be worshipping or giving ourselves to anybody or anything save the only true and living God. Well, I leave it at that this morning. The apostle has more to say, which is alarming and terrifying. We leave it there. That's enough for us. We are saints set apart for God Men to live to him and his glory, to worship and to praise him alone. Let us ever remember that. And remembering it, let us realize that certain things are incompatible with that. And that we are to renounce them forever, avoid them and evade them in every way conceivable and positively. Live a life which is a constant expression of thanksgiving unto God who has had mercy upon us, and who, while we were yet sinners and ungodly and vile and enemies, gave his only begotten Son even unto the death of the cross, that we might be rescued and redeemed and have a share in his own eternal inheritance. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. 
You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.